At Federal, we have products for every season and every pursuit. Our passionate and dedicated teams design, build, and deliver the world's best American-made ammunition, whether you're hunting, target shooting, or defending yourself and family. Our pride and hard work can be found in every box, ammo can, or bottle of ammunition. For us, it's always in season. It's federal season. All right, welcome to Federal Ammunition's podcast. It's federal season. I'm Jason Vanderbrink, the president of Federal Ammunition. And today uh, we have a very special guest today. We have uh, Officer Bill Gray, who's a special agent with the Wisconsin Alcohol and Tobacco Enforcement Unit. Today's a, a, a more unique podcast than we've taken previously. Uh, we are we are a very, very big supporter and the lion's share of market share in the law enforcement ammunition uh, division. So what we did today is kind of stray away from our shooting traditional hunting podcast. And uh, Bill Gray is gracious enough to come here from Wisconsin to share a story about an episode that uh, that changed Bill's life forever, for sure. Uh, and then uh, he used federal HST to do so. So, Bill, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So uh, the story that, that we're going to talk about is uh, a, a very, very interesting story and, and tragic story, but at the same time, you live to tell about it. And, uh, yep. you know, one of the things that we talk about all the time is, is uh, especially with CCI and Spear out in Lewiston, with Spear Gold Dot, Federal HST here, sometimes we take for granted that the ammunition that we make every day and take for granted every day, it saves people's lives. And, and uh, we would love for you to, to share the story of such that happened, uh, what, uh, six years ago now? Five. Yep. November 14th, 2014. If you could tell our listeners uh, about the story and, and what that day meant to you and how that day will ever, forever change your life. Sure. Um, it was, uh, about just a little after lunchtime and, uh, I worked for the Chippewa County Sheriff's Office at the time as a detective in, as a, uh, financial crimes detective. And, I just got off the phone with a Homeland Security agent uh, on another matter, and he called me right back after I hung up and said, hey, can you do us a favor? Um, we have a 17-year-old girl who is has been reported as a missing juvenile out of the state of Florida. Um, he said the last time anybody knew she was supposed to be with uh, this male from the UK who had come into the country and uh, we're wondering if you can go check this address that we have and see if uh, she's there. Obviously, being a missing juvenile rather than a, a runaway, which apparently she had never done before, heightened the alertness. Um, however, the address that he used, they told me there's really no reason to believe he's actually there. And I asked him uh, how long he had been on the run, and they said 34 days. Uh, so October 10th was when he had actually come into the country, and she had been missing since then as well. And um, I thought there was probably not going to be any issues. I didn't figure if he was there, he was going to answer the door, um, if he's been on the run for 34 days. Uh, but they were really adamant about the fact that we needed to find the girl, make sure she was okay. So... I asked another investigator that was uh, there if he'd like to go with me, and 
he said that he couldn't because he had an interview coming in. And I thought, no big deal. Uh, he's not going to answer the door if I do go there, but uh, I'll, I'll make the effort. So I drove there, and I realized the address was a four-apartment complex, and they hadn't given me an apartment number. And so I just started knocking on the first door, uh, which was apartment one. And as I was standing there announcing who I was, the door opened up about six to eight inches and it was just pitch black in the inside so I couldn't see uh, inside and whoever was behind the door wouldn't announce themselves. We had deal, uh, excuse me, we had dealt with the individuals that live in that apartment before, one of them being another uh, young female, 17 years old, uh, no fan of law enforcement for sure. Her mother was not a fan of law enforcement and the girl uh, was known to harbor runaways and drugs and other things. And so I thought it was probably her. And as I'm talking, the door just very slowly closed and shut, which I thought was odd. But I knocked for a little longer, nobody would come to the door. So to my right, about 20 feet away was another door, another apartment. So I knocked on that one and it was 16 degrees below zero that day with no wind chill. And uh, I was starting to rush myself a little bit and trying to get back into the car and get warm. And as I'm knocking on the second door, I heard to my left, can I help you in an English accent, British uh, accent. And I looked over to my left and there's this my subject holding the door open and i walked toward him and i held up the sheet of paper that i had received from homeland security with his face on it and with uh, the missing juvenile and i said uh what's your name and he said donnie and i said well donnie you look a lot an awful lot like this guy and his name was Sharinder garcha and i said why did you say donnie and he said, well, people can't remember my name, so they just nicknamed me Donnie. I said, oh, okay. So uh, he invited me into the house, which is the last thing I wanted to do until I could figure out what this guy was about, if there was anybody else in the house. Um, and just before I stepped up onto the step, I had heard a deputy just down the road uh, calling on the microphone uh, or the radio and so I got on the radio and asked him to come up and, and support me, <clears throat> back me up. So within two minutes, he was there. And then that's when I walked into the house, and so did he. And I got on uh, into the house, and I noticed that Sharinder got right on his phone right away, and I asked him who he was chatting or texting, and he said, the girl you're looking for. And I said, well, where is she? And he said, well, she's in Eau Claire smoking meth with some guy that's missing half his leg. She stole $8,000 from me, and she's been nothing but a pain, you know, since she came up. <clears throat> and I said, how did she get here? And he said, well, when I was down in Florida, um, they had seized my passport, and then they took me to a holding facility to fly me out the next day, but there wasn't any room there for me, so they gave me a parole visa into the country for one day and he said and as soon as they let me go I contacted her 
and met up with her. And he apparently had been chatting with her on Kick, um, which is an app for your phone. And uh, he apparently liked the younger females. And uh, I found out later this was not his first time in Chippewa County, Wisconsin. Uh, he had actually been at that same address in January of 2014. And um, then he was sleeping with, uh, I believe, a 15-year-old girl or a 16-year-old girl. Um, so I'm talking with him. I call Homeland Security to let him know that I had him in custody and I had had to step outside to do that. And when I was talking with the Homeland Security agent, uh, he asked me how he'd been. I said, he's been a perfect gentleman. No problems whatsoever. He says he just wants to go home. He's sick and tired of this girl. And she stole $8,000 from him in cash and had been smoking meth with it. He was ready to go back home. Um, the deputy who was with me thought the same thing as I was thinking, that this guy's pretty cool, just made a mistake. So um, the Homeland Security agent told me that I should, he goes, why don't you take him out of handcuffs? Because what we really need is his cooperation. And if you believe he's safe enough, just take him out of cuffs and take him to the sheriff's office and see uh, if he'll let you interview him. Uh, the hope was that he would admit to having sex with underage girls and then we could keep him there until they made up their mind who they were going to send up from uh, the Milwaukee area to deal with uh, Sherinder. Uh, he said, but in the meantime, we need to find the girl. That's the biggest thing here. We don't know if she's alive or not. So I went back into the house and uh, I told Sherinder to stand up and I was going to pat him down before I took the cuffs off him. And the deputy that was with me said he already patted him down uh, when I went outside. And I said, okay. So I took the cuffs off him um, and he wanted to go to his backpack, which was about 10 feet from where I was standing because he wanted his, uh, I thought he said he wanted his wallet because of the way things transpired. Neither one of us can remember exactly what he wanted. Whatever it was, wasn't a threat to us. So it wasn't needed to be searched. So I told Sherinder he was more than welcome to take a taxi or whatever, because he was no longer under arrest. And he decided to ride with me in my, uh, Chevy Impala, which was unmarked. So I took him to the sheriff's office and I and my uh, lieutenant uh, interviewed him in an interview room. And he, again, was just very relaxed, um, kept telling us what we wanted to hear, which was how sick of being, you know, in the United States he was and wanted to go back home. And um, eventually the Homeland Security agent uh, called me back and told me, why don't you just go ahead and tell him he's under arrest. They are going to send some agents up because this was a Friday um, and they are going to take him into custody, but we still need to do our due diligence to try to find this young lady that was missing. So I explained that to Sherinder and he was very cooperative. Um, he said, nope. He goes, uh, if I can leave, great, but he goes, I'll still hang around and help you find her. I know exactly which house she's in. So we took him to, uh, when I say we, I ended up getting a drug unit guy. Uh, with his minivan and we went to Eau Claire and, and Sherinder was in the front seat with him and I was right behind Sherinder and uh, Sherinder pointed out the house that she was in. We attempted to make contact with her. She wouldn't come out and so we left and on our way back Sherinder looked over his uh, left shoulder at me and said, hey, would you take me back to the apartment where you found me because I left my backpack there and that's all I brought. And he goes, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if she, the missing juvenile, 
comes back around and ends up at that same apartment, she could be there now uh, because all she brought was a suitcase. <clears throat> she knows you're, we're looking for her now as well. So I had no problem with him. He was just very cooperative. Um, one thing I did not know that I found out later was he was actually searched again by somebody at the sheriff's office when I went to take a phone call and from Homeland Security and left him in the hands of uh, four deputies. And uh, when I came back out, he was like joking around with these deputies and just nonchalant. And so I didn't have any problem with him. I didn't have any reason to believe uh, a guy wearing uh, sweatpants and a, and a sweat jacket and a t-shirt was going to do something like that later. And um, so I took him about, well, it's about 20 miles from Eau Claire to Chippewa. We got back to the sheriff's office. He got in my car and he grabbed my laptop cradle and gave it kind of a little twist. And I was thinking, well, it must be in his way. So I straightened it out for him. And on my way back to the apartment, um, <clears throat> I started thinking about all the people that could be at that apartment and it's just me and they're no lovers of law enforcement. So it was smarter to ask for backup. So I pulled into uh, uh, the Blue Ribbon Awards uh, parking lot um, and stopped there and called my boss because I had heard he was on his way home. And my boss at the time only lived about 10, well, we lived two miles apart. So it was about 10 miles from where I was sitting. And uh, he said to contact the area car and see if uh, they could get there sooner, but he would turn around and come toward me to see if he could help. So I put my uh, flip phone in my left hand, picked up the mic, called that uh, uh, deputy, and he showed up, or I should say uh, he was about seven miles away. And so I put the phone back in my, my right hand, and, and while I was uh, looking down the road talking to my lieutenant, um, Surinder got his seatbelt off without me hearing it and got the folding knife out of wherever he had it hid and uh, reached over and stabbed me in the face. But at that time, I had no idea I'd been stabbed. It just felt like a huge blow to the side of my head. He knocked the phone out of my hand, and um, I turned to my right figuring the door was going to open up and he'd be running. And instead he had his back up against the door with the knife in his hand up by the window. And um, as soon as I saw the knife, I went for the seatbelt buckle and the door handle and tried to get out of the car to create some distance. And what I didn't know is he had already stabbed me in the cheek, uh, just below my cheekbone, and it went into the root of my tooth and cracked my tooth. Um, I didn't feel any of that, just a blow. Felt like being in a, in a boxing match. Um, Sherinder sees me go for the seatbelt buckle, so he uh, lunged at me and took his left hand and grabbed my right wrist and pinned it to the seat, you know, so right behind my back, so I couldn't use it and I couldn't get out of my seatbelt. And the car's running. Um, so at that point, all I could do was keep putting my left forearm and hand up, trying to block the blows of the knife. And uh, ultimately, he slit my throat on the right side three times. Uh, he stabbed me three times in the cheek, cut my nose almost completely off, and a couple times under the chin. And um, eventually, I was able to wrestle with him with my right hand, and I grabbed a hold of his, his right eye and tried to pull it out, and he broke loose of my hand. Uh, my hand was completely full of blood at that time from it draining down my neck into my shirt, and so it was, it was difficult to hold on to anything, which we find out later. But he, um, 
looked at me, was trying to clear out his eye, and from my past experiences working with uh, mentally disturbed people, or um, he, I just figured if I talked to him in a calm voice, he'd talk to me in a calm voice, and maybe I could calm him down. So I looked at him, I said, dude, I got a wife and kids, man, settle down. What's your problem kind of thing, you know? And I then lunged for the microphone, and I keyed it and said my number, and uh, to dispatch and said I was uh, officer down, I need help. And um, at that point, an officer from another jurisdiction keyed the mic and uh, walked all over all over me, which means basically he took up my airtime so that dispatch never heard me uh, calling for help. And uh, then he knocked my arm off the microphone, microphone fell on the floorboard, and then he got up on my laptop cradle with with one of his knees and got up over top and he kind of pushed me forward and I knew what was coming next. I saw him switch hands with the knife, so I tucked my chin or my uh, jawbone down to my left shoulder and was trying to protect my throat and uh, using my left hand trying to get him to leave me alone, you know, or keep the knife away from me. Instead, he stabbed me in the jawbone and cut out a piece of my face um, and the knife went off the jawbone and into my throat and cut two arteries that come off your carotid artery, and then he stuck it in my Adam's apple and pulled it back toward the back of my ear. Um, and when he did that, I realized that my uh, right hand was free for the first time, even though I'd already wrestled with him and everything, you know. Um, but you have all those little tiny conversations with yourself, you know, and they're just like lightning fast. And I just remember thinking, hey, dummy, your right hand is free. So I got my seatbelt off. And as it was coming across my chest, I grabbed, had a hold of him by his shoulder and I shoved him over into the seat. And uh, based on the position that he had put him or he had fallen into, I was only able to get a shot off underneath his jaw. So I'm, I'm like pulling two jackets over top of my gun. Finally, got a hold of my gun and when I pulled to get it out of the holster it slipped off the gun because my hand was so full of blood it looked like I had dipped it in red paint and uh, I grabbed the gun again without thinking about it and stuck it under his jaw and pulled the trigger and at the very last second uh, he must have known it was coming because he tried to back away and it ended up putting a shot just uh, almost right between his eyebrows and he died instantly and uh, I was able to finally get out of the car. I took a knee, calmed myself down, then got up, went out to the road, flagged some people down. Eventually, a white pickup truck stopped with two guys. They came out, and I backed away from the road, laid down, and they were able to help me. So, That was a, a great story. You do a great job of uh, reliving it, and it's got to be tough every day. But uh, what what went on then as far as post the altercation? Um, how many surgeries? How long has it been and, and stitches and stuff like that? I ended up with 58 stitches total inside and outside to repair my throat so I could swallow again. And, you know, all those nerves that got severed and um, my nose had to be, I had to have surgery on my nose again because once they sewed it up the first time, uh, my septum was basically in a 90 degree angle. So I, I couldn't hardly breathe through my nose at all. So I ended up having surgery for that. Um, swallow tests that they, you know, they give you different juices and yogurts and stuff to see how well, to make sure that things aren't going down the wrong way and end up in your, in your lungs, <clears throat> which I actually have had because if I eat an orange or an apple, anything that's got some solid uh, texture to it, but also has juice, 
while I'm chewing, it's slipping down the back of my throat on the left side, and I can't, it's still numb, so I can't feel anything on the left side going down, and it sneaks down, hits my vocal cords, and a little bit, I think, sneaks into my lungs, and now I have like an upper respiratory uh, issue, which we've tried to correct and haven't been able to so far, but um, a month after this happened, I ended up breaking my arm, sitting, uh, simply getting up off the ground and I had put pressure on my knuckles on my left arm and when I twisted to the left it snapped my arm in half and I think a lot of that had to do with just fighting with him trying to keep that knife away between his adrenaline my adrenaline and hitting that bone I think it finally just weakened it enough and all it took was the right amount of pressure and turn and it snapped it in half so that set me back for another couple of months and um, unfortunately I was not able to get my I wasn't able to be cleared and go back to work for three months because of um, a lot of reports that still had to be completed by uh, Wisconsin's DCI. The, also the fact that um, he was from the UK, so there's an international issue. So um, after, um, you know, I had this thing, this fear of, of, I was already in Iraq and I had some PTSD from that, but then I had this fear of having more PTSD and sitting at home twiddling my thumbs and maybe see one of my you know the fellow deputies that i work with maybe gets hurt and i see that on tv you know i just couldn't deal with that so i started going back to work and attending investigator meetings which we had on a daily basis at the time um so that i could keep involved and in, and things like that um so about a year and a half after that, I ended up having a full-fledged panic attack, which I didn't recognize as a panic attack. I really thought I was having some major heart issues or something, and that was in front of 115 police officers. And uh, just the embarrassment of that alone uh, really took its toll. But um, I had probably five or six more of those before I turned into it turned into panic disorder. And I ended up getting some specialized help through a psychiatrist for that stuff so I could understand what was going on. Yeah. Did a lot of YouTube uh, videos uh, trying to deal with it without medication and just never could. And now finally got on some medication thanks to that psychiatrist. And, and uh, I'm pretty much being back to who I was. Good. As far as, you know, the importance of ammunition, because there's uh, lots of different types of ammunition out there. They all serve a great purpose. But talk about the ammunition and in your background is just studying ballistics. Yeah, so at eight years old, my my uncle uh, took me out shooting, and I I don't know it it sparked something in me way back then. Um, he got me started in in a not competition shooting per se, but between he and I, and I really enjoyed it. And then I really got into ballistics. I uh, was very, very interested in collecting ammunition of all different types and sizes. And one of the hardware stores, every time he got some new rifle ammunition in, he'd just pull one out of the box and give it to me for my collection, you know. Yeah. Uh, I went into the Army in 1984, and my mom told me I had to get rid of that stuff. She didn't want it sitting around the house. So right. I ended up selling it to a guy that I know still has it. So it's pretty cool. Um, and... I even had six rounds that my great-grandfather had given me where the very first brass-cased ammunition Sam Colt came out with. I'll be done. That was his story anyway. Yeah. But yeah, so, um, and then when I be, you know, I, I continued that even when I came back out of the Army in 1999. And 
just continued the collection and and getting really interested in ballistics and um, once I became a police officer I started looking at the ammunition that we were using and wondering if there was something better out there and the first uh, I, I remember we were carrying uh, at the Cornell Police Department we had uh, the hydroshock yeah you know the federal hydroshock seller for us today yeah it's, it's a great round you know but I looked at it and said well I started looking at the whole science behind it and the jacket separating from the lead and, and how much energy you lose and muzzle velocities from certain length pistol bores and things like that. And and uh, the one thing I had come across before HST came out was the federal, um, uh, the tactical round where the, the jacket was chemically bonded yeah, to the bullet. Tactical bonded. And so I talked the chief into starting to carry that. And it's not, I'm not saying anything about any other manufacturer yeah. of ammunition it's just that when i read fbi statistics and what was actually working out there the federal bonded tactical round was what had kept coming up and we ended up ultimately uh going to that mm -hmm. chief uh said order it up and uh i shortly became known as the guy that if you wanted questions answered about ammunition or pistols or rifles you know from my extensive background as you know from eight years old on up that i was the guy to go talk to about you know if you wanted to carry a handgun off duty which ones were you know sure. you know that kind of thing and then what ammunition to carry and uh so that was when did i start 2001 so Good. way back then you know uh, i we started with federal and again Sometimes it's like, if it isn't broke, don't fix it, right? So we just kept carrying that round. And then when I got to the Chippewa County Sheriff's Office uh, after 2005, uh, or 2006, I started there in April. And um, unbeknownst to me, they were already carrying the HST round back then. And so they still are today. Good. And after I used the round that day um, with Surrender, uh, that's all I carry. Um, I know it works and that's the thing, you know, I mean, there are a lot of ammunition companies out there and there's just a constant flow of this round and that round and, you know, uh, pedals breaking off and going through the body and stuff. Um, but what I know is what that round looked like after they uh, took it from him during the autopsy. And I know you guys have seen pictures of it and yep. it, it just, first of all, it stayed inside his uh cranium and that alone being that the barrel was only about three inches from his forehead when it went off uh to, for that round it was 180 grain hst for, for that round to stay in his in his head just blew my mind it yeah. was like i don't have any of his brain matter or anything else on me no blood uh the bullet didn't go through the windshield and hit somebody else or hurt somebody else. And in law enforcement, we have a, uh, a golden rule, which is you are responsible for every round you shoot. Yeah. And I knew where that round was. Mm -hmm. So. So if you, when you look back on that day and you always have to learn from stuff and in hindsight's obviously 2020, what would you have done different that day? Well, first of all, even though he was searched in the house by the first deputy, he was going in to ride with me, and I should have searched him again. That's kind of a, another one of our rules is if they're riding with you, 
doesn't matter who had them before or what kind of search they did before or whatever, you are going to search them before they get in with you. Um, another thing is, is even if Homeland Security or some other agency wants this person taken out of handcuffs, I don't, I mean, I don't know if we would have been able to change that, but it sure would be nice to go back and be able to just leave the cuffs on them. Yeah. Um, a lot of times we end up cuffing them in front because it's uncomfortable for them in the back, depending on how long they're going to ride. And truly, if he had the knife crotched or something, he still could have gotten it out, but it would have been a lot harder for him to maneuver in my car. Um, certainly not believing, even after three and a half hours, that this guy is not going to try to hurt you. You know, that complacency almost got me killed. Yeah. And to this day, you still don't know where the knife was. Uh, we don't. Yeah. What, what would you recommend for law enforcement? So uh, if, if, you, if you get out of college today, law enforcement as far as a career, what would you, what would you recommend for, for students learning law enforcement and going into it? Um, first of all, the, the very first recommendation that I tell people is surround yourself with officers that are going to take the time to train you and not just leave you alone, kind of, you know, you fall on your face if you fall on your face. There are those officers in every department that I've worked in that are so willing to see you succeed and not get hurt, and they're those top-tier officers. So what I tell people is, out of a scale from 1 to 10, hang around the 8s, 9s, and 10s. If you think you can salvage a number 7 and bring them up to number, you know, the 8s through the 10s, great, do it. But don't waste your time with the ones through sixes that are cancers, that they just, all they ever want to do is complain. They didn't get this, they didn't get that, management's this, management's that. It's kind of like being in the Army, you know, and you want to you wanna survive in combat, and you're maybe not, a, you're not a Green Beret, you're not a SEAL, you're not any of those things, but find those people that have the expertise and learn from them, and, you know, it rubs off on you. Yeah. That that type of bravado definitely rubs off on me. And I read books all the time about that kind of stuff and trying to gain some knowledge from uh, from those guys. And it's training that we as your normal Army uh, infantry, or I was a military police and then military police investigation, but it's the type of training we never got. So when I was in Iraq, I uh, had a great opportunity up in Mosul to uh, – shoot with some of the special forces guys and they were just the most down-to-earth individuals and and helped me with some things that i was doing uh, incorrectly and i've just always been that guy i want to learn from other people so that's one thing just go with the eights nines and tens and the other thing is is any type of training that you can get volunteer free whatever if your agency is willing to send you to training get all the training you can as a young uh, individual. And then eventually, you know, you'll work your way up into the detective spots or the special agent positions, um, whether federal or state. Um, and always, always search, but take your time. I know that there are times that you won't get that much time. Uh, we have metal detecting wands out there. We have, you know, you got two hands, use them. And then if you can pass them off to your partner, um, and that partner's going to take them, then search them again. You can't search enough, but make sure that you search and do a thorough one. Yeah, and you, you surround yourself like business. When we talk about business, if you look at the great CEOs or 
or just some business moguls. I mean, a, a Bill Gates or a Warren Buffett, or they always they always say Steve Jobs was famous at saying, "You got to surround yourself with good people, and then hopefully you can't be afraid. Hopefully those people want to want your job because because if you surround yourself with good people, they will certainly make you look good as well. Absolutely, it's the same as law enforcement. Yep. When you're when you're in that uh, you're up to that uh, sergeant position or lieutenant position, you can't look at it as I, I have the knowledge and I don't want anybody else to have that knowledge. Your job is to make those individuals below you the best officers that you can to take your spot someday, but also to keep the police department or sheriff's department out of trouble, you know, court courtroom stuff, yeah. uh, but most importantly, to save the lives uh, of the individuals that you work with. In, in, uh you know something something i thought that your story is certain fa certainly fascinating and we appreciate you telling it to us but uh when when you said uh come on dude i got family and kids at home and a wife at home what does that mean what did that mean to you then and what does it mean to you now i mean we got ella here today pretty fascinating she probably gets tired of hearing these stories <laughs> but uh that's you took the time to say that to him and did or did you ever think you were you're going to see your family again you know, in my mind, I was not gonna not see my family. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was something to try that I hoped would sink into him because he also is he's two thousand miles away from home or thereabout. You know, and to try to cross that line into um, his personality and and uh, getting him to think what he was doing to me and what would he feel about his family basically if he was in the same yeah. position you know so it was something to try and even though i was trying it i was being sincere you know I, i've got a wife and kids why would you what's the reasoning you know i'm I, I still haven't and i'm sure i never will ever figure out what would cause somebody to not only stab somebody once but then see what they've done to that person and then figure oh i'm just gonna keep going and end this guy's life then what yeah. Now what are you going to do? Right. You didn't accomplish much. Right. So uh, that was when you were with the Chippewa County Sheriff's Office. Correct. So so today you're, uh, you're a state employee. Yep. A special agent. So what, ma what made you switch? Well, I, it was, um, it had nothing to do with the Sheriff's Office or, you know, I mean, management was awesome. Um, everybody surrounded me uh, with as much as, uh, you know, as much love and assistance and friendship as they could. So it had nothing to do with that. But I've always been the, one of those guys that's never really been satisfied at one place very long. And I, I've been trying to climb a ladder all my life. I'm 55 now, and I think I'll probably do that till I'm 70 and finally pull the plug, you know. But uh, I love law enforcement. It's my identity. It's who I am. The military police, you know, same thing. I'm still an Army guy at heart. Um, and I was working a couple different cases with some, uh, alcohol related stuff and, uh, an agency that I had no idea even, even existed, uh, came to my, uh, uh, lady told me about, and she said, why don't you get a hold of this guy and he can help you with your, with your investigation. So I reached out to him and, uh, he had explained after a couple of these cases that he thought I would fit in with their unit and I should apply. And uh, so I did, and it was about a year and a half after the stabbing um, when I got hired. And it's a phenomenal job. I love every minute of it, and this is, this is where I'm 
settling in, so I'm not going to be jumping ship. <laughs> um, I do have a couple other part-time jobs that I that I like to do. One of them is a, I'm a professional assistant, they call it, at a funeral home now. So I still like to give to the community. I don't yeah. know what else I would do. Sure. You know, I, uh, I had people telling me to take the duty disability after I got stabbed and go do something I liked or something I loved. And I just looked at them and said, but this is what I love. This yeah. is what I know. And <clears throat> one thing I had said in the past was, if every individual out there who was looking to hurt a police officer or kill a police officer uh, thought that all I have to do is hurt this police officer and he or she will go away forever and I don't have to deal with that person anymore, what would our world be like? Mm -hmm. You know, um, I say pull your leather troop carriers back on and go back to work because mentally, if you can mentally and physically, you know, you need to get back to work. That's the biggest yeah. thing is go right back into it. It's like the old falling off a bicycle thing, you know. That's right. If that's who you are and that's what you know and you quit on yourself, you're also quitting on your fellow officers. You're quitting on a lot of stuff. And I don't think in my case that would have led to any positive road. Yeah. No, I think you, uh, you summed that up good. You got to get back at it. Yep. All right. For our listeners, if you want to see the uh, the Bill Gray story, you can go to Federal Premium's website and you click on the This is Federal tab, scroll down to the Your Partner in Protection, and uh, we have an eight-minute video that we have done uh, a, a few months ago about Bill and Bill's story. So, Bill uh, and Ella, we thank you for being here today. We thank you for uh, telling us uh, that fascinating story. We appreciate your service to our, to our, to our country. Well, thank you. Uh, and uh, service to the community in Wisconsin. You bet. And and even if even because you're a Packers fan, we still appreciate that. <laughs> all right. Thanks, well, we're thanks, not all Bill. perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Fans of Federal, are you looking for the coolest in apparel, hats, range gear, all things Federal to show off your brand pride? Check out the merchandise page at federalpremium.com to find exclusive items not available anywhere else like Black Rifle Coffee Company's Federal Custom Shop Coffee Roast. Whether you're treating yourself or buying a gift, get free shipping if you spend more than $99. Plus, get free gear when you spend more than $150. Check out federalpremium.com and remember, it's always federal season. Meet the industry's widest variety of game-changing ammunition. However you shoot, in whatever you hunt, fortune favors the prepared. And nothing prepares you better than Federal Premium. It's a gold standard advantage delivered directly from the experts in premium ammunition. Find your Federal Premium Advantage today. Welcome back to It's Federal Season and our technology segment, Tech Talk. All right, welcome back to It's Federal Season in our technology segment, Tech Talk. The story of uh, Bill Graves, Larry, we just listened to uh, certainly is riveting, but it goes to show you how dangerous the job is of the brave men and women in law enforcement. And we forgot to mention when we talked to Bill, he, he was awarded the Purple Heart uh, for law enforcement, so it's a great, great achievement. Um, and they do this every day with little pay or not enough pay, much like teachers to me. Um, they are constantly scrutinized by the media. Uh, they don't get the recognition they deserve for the jobs that they perform day in and day out. 
that's one reason why us at federal we support law enforcement uh and and you know in the last two years we have given about $180,000 to four families of fallen heroes from law enforcement. So I think we've get donated in just under $200,000 of, uh, of, of cash to these families and, and law enforcement certainly is to the heart of our, uh, a heart of our DNA of the company that we are. So joining us today, we have Larry head, who's our chief engineer, uh, at federal for, and he covers all of pistol. So, uh, we call Larry here at federal, Mr. HST. So welcome, Larry. Thank you. So, Larry, there's a standard for federal and spear because because you're over spear too for the for the engineering side that must meet when you're designing and building ammunition for law enforcement. Certainly, the FBI protocol is is the gold standard. Can you t- describe our listeners what is the FBI protocol? How did it come, and how important it is to the round? Sure. The FBI protocol is basically a test scenario to try to make sure that bullets will perform in the field the way they're supposed to. And so the FBI protocol has six different tests. Um, Basically, there's 10% ballistics gelatin that the round is shot into. And prior to that, there would be barriers that would be typical of law enforcement to encounter prior to um, going into the, the gelatin. So the first protocol is a bare gelatin. Then they also have a wall board, which simulates shooting through a residential or commercial building. There's a plywood barrier that is also tested. There's a sheet metal, which would simulate shooting through a car door. There's an automobile glass, which is, again, to simulate shooting through an auto glass. And then there's a heavy clothing, which is shooting basically a person who's clothed with a lot of of clothing. And that protocol really is what we use to fine-tune the ammunition performance based on what a particular agency is looking for. And, and how did the FBI come up with the protocol? Famous shootout in Miami. That was a pivotal moment in ammunition design and what law enforcement is looking at in terms of evaluating um, ammunition. Basically, what happened is back in 1986, down in Miami, there were two bank robbers that were the FBI was trying to apprehend. And there were, I believe it was eight agents that were trying to apprehend these two individuals. It ended up getting into a gunfight when they stopped them. Uh, over about a five-minute period, there was something on the order of 145 shots that were, were fired in that. At the end of that, there were both suspects were, were killed. Two of the agents were killed, and I believe five of them were injured. The reason that's such a pivotal moment is one of the suspects who ended up killing the two agents, he actually was shot with a very well-placed shot, but the bullet itself stopped about an inch short of the heart. If it had penetrated a little bit further, neither of those two agents would have been dead. So after the aftermath of that event is the FBI really went through trying to figure out how do we come up with ammunition that is going to perform the way we want it to so that we don't have a repeat of that disaster. And that's what precipitated the FBI protocol. Talk about heavy clothing or auto glass or drywall. All you do is you simply put this this barrier up in front of the gelatin and ultimately you still want 12 to 14 inches of protect of uh, penetration, right? That is correct. So basically the round is fighting, being fired through those barriers, then goes into the gelatin and that's what we're looking for. So describe to our listeners why auto glass is so hard to get performance on. Sure. One of the issues when you're designing ammunition is in order to work through all of the barriers, 
it's a kind of a compromise between all of them. So if you're trying to get something to work in in bare gelatin and also working through autoglass, you have two diametrically opposed things you're trying to do. When a round goes through autoglass, it's it's just an immense force on that bullet. And bullets have hollow points, which are designed to open up when it hits fluid and that type of thing. None of that is is there with the autoglass. And so you've got this round that's trying to go through a very hard surface. It's got the laminate in between the two sheets that tries to grab that bullet. And it really is a very hard barrier to try to defeat. And what ends up happening is you end up with the bullet breaking into pieces and uh, or flattening out too far. And so it's very difficult to get that barrier to perform the way we want it to perform. So when we talk about federal, our flagship round here today is uh, HST, which is what Bill had used uh, during his shootout. But describe to our listeners, what is the HST bullet and why is that bullet so big in law enforcement? HST was developed in the early 2000s. It took us about five years to perfect this bullet. And what we did, that was one of the first bullets that federal... I'll back up a little bit. Hydroshock was the first bullet that was designed after the FBI protocol, but over the next 10 years, we learned a lot. All of that information went into the HST and learning how to develop a bullet that would defeat those barriers very, very effectively. So HST is our first bullet that really was designed specifically to perform very well against all of those barriers and all the different compromises that made our, that go into developing a bullet to work well across that whole spectrum. Uh, there's a lot of proprietary things in that bullet that we want to, can't get into, but I mean, there are hollow point shapes, differences and thicknesses and tapers and all of those things that go into perfecting a bullet. But probably the thing that the HST is known most for, and we have a patent on that, is a co-aligned skiving, which is basically weakening up the front of that bullet so we can uh, engineer the way that that bullet performs going through barriers and going through the, the gelatin. And that really is kind of the heart of what the HST is, is those, those pre, pre-weakened areas in the bullet that makes it perform so well. When you look at HST, what I look at, when I think of HST, it's just this big, very, very pretty expanded hollow point. I mean, it is just beautiful when you shoot it into gelatin. Um, so, so tell our listeners, bonded bullets is big in hunting and it's big in law enforcement. We, we at Federal, we bond a lot, but not necessarily a bonded bullet. There, there's certain good aspects of a bonded bullet and certain aspects that, that are better if you just have a cup and core. What's the difference? The primary reason for using a bonded bullet is for the autoglass barrier. Um, with a standard cup and core bullet, which is what HST is and, and many other similar type of bullets, um, when you go through the autoglass, you can actually, the jacket can kind of act as a parachute and the core keeps going and you end up with, with jacket and core separation and poor performance after penetrating that. When you have a bonded bullet like our gold dot or um, that type of bullet, there's no way for the jacket to separate from that core. So when you're going through the autoglass barrier, it just is a, a more robust way of penetrating and feeding that glass. So what, what is the diff- main difference? Is, it, is the bonding the main difference between a gold dot and HST? 
In performance, yes, that's going to be the primary barrier that if, if you need, you know, if your department is going to be shooting through uh, a fair, fairly large number of auto glass incidences, that's where you may want to get a bonded bullet. Um, as we move, you know, as bullet technology is, is expanding and, and maturing, we are finding ways other than bonding to achieve some of the same performance. Some of the later, and, and even HST has kind of evolved over the, the last 15, 20 years to where our performance through Autoglass with HST is much better today than it was when it was first introduced. Okay, and then tell our listeners about, uh, we released to the, to the commercial market this year, Gold Dot 2. So what's the difference between Gold Dot 2 and Gold Dot, which Gold Dot is the staple, many, many, sure. many departments use Gold Dot. But what's the difference? One of the more recent technologies that's been developed over the last 10, 15 years is having elastomer in the hollow point. What that elastomer does is really make performance more consistent through all of the barriers. One of the real issues that you have with, with the real early hollow points and even more into somewhat into the more recent hollow points is that the hollow point will get plugged up with debris. What the Goldot G2 does is it puts this elastomer in that hollow point and it prevents that from getting plugged up. So it's just a much more robust expansion through all the different barriers and you get consistency shot after shot. So if a customer, one of our listeners is looking, looking for a best of the best, it, 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 in personal defense handgun, it really depends what you want to do with it. Right. There's, we have, we have short barrel, you have, you have, um, Elastomer in Gold Dot Two. You have non-elastomer in Gold Dot One. You got HST. You got Syntec Defense. You got Hydroshock. How do we how do we tell our listeners the differences in these? That is simple. And if you had to say one or two points when you're looking at a hollow point ammunition, personal defense ammunition, what would be those main one or two points? For one, for most personal defense standpoints, auto glass, steel, those are not barriers that were really. Uh, high on our list of things to to try to defeat. And one of the things with bullet development is it's all a series of compromises trying to get the different barriers to work. So if you're trying to get something to work in the auto glass or, or the car scenario, you have to give up a little bit in, in some other barrier. So what HST has done is really focus on more on the softer barriers of the, the plywoods, wallboards, heavy clothing, that's more where its its design is optimized for. So from a personal defense standpoint, that's an excellent round to use. When you move into uh, things like Gold Dot G2 or uh, you know carry gun, those are those are even more modern where you're you're getting better performance across everything. So those are also it's an excellent round to carry. Um, you're going to get very good performance on on both of those. But the carry gun and G2 are going to give you better performance in auto glass. If that's something that's really important to you, that's what you should be stepping up to. If the normal defensive scenarios are, are adequate for you, both of those rounds will work well. What's the difference between short barrel, we have HST short barrel, humongous seller for us right now, and standard HST? That's a very good question. The short barrel itself is designed with lighter weight bullets slightly in order to get the velocity up in the shorter barrel shorter shorter length guns quicker burning propellants um some of them are quicker burning propellants most of them there's not a huge difference between them but there is some quick quicker burning in the short in the carry um 
things like the HST, the, the 147 HST, it actually performs very well in a short barrel as well because it's a very robust design. Um, that's not true of all bullets, but the HST, some of the heavier weight ones are, are also very good in short barrels, which is why we don't have a necessarily a short barrel um, round for all of the HSTs because okay. many of them are working well. The carry gun with the G2, that's, those are designed specifically for that with the skiving and the hollow points. All of those things are designed together to make a round that is specifically designed for the, the short barrel gun, which is why it works in them. Okay, well, I know your team's been busy. You have uh, a lot of new products slated for 2020 this year. And you have a very robust pipeline for next year, so we do. We uh, we appreciate what you do and uh, and what you're doing for for not only law enforcement but to the commercial market is. Uh, I mean, there's no no company in the world offers as much variety in personal defense as Federal and Spear. So thank you for what you do. Well, thank you. There's a time and a place for every season. This is that time, and these are those special places. When preparation gives way to anticipation, rituals, and traditions. <laughs> Friends, family, forever. This is what you live for. It's time to celebrate the annual tradition like no other. It's federal season. Welcome back to It's Federal Season and the News and Notes segment. Welcome back to the It's Federal Season podcast and the News and Notes segment. I'm Jason Nash, head of marketing, and we've got a couple of exciting tidbits of news here. Um, number one, we are fastly approaching our 100th anniversary as a company at Federal. And uh, the team is excited. The other day, we had a whole group of us from marketing and sales go over and, and sort through some of our artifacts. And boy, you find some really interesting items. We, uh, we've had great fans of the show and we've had fans of the brand write us and send in artifacts themselves. So we appreciate all the feedback from people and the stories behind the brand. And we really look forward to telling that as, as we approach our 100th anniversary. We'll have unique products. We'll have celebrations. It's going to be really a great time and a wonderful celebration. There's very small percentage of companies that actually make it to 100 years. So it's it's really a proud moment for all of us to be part of that. And we look forward to sharing that with you. We also have a really exciting promotion coming up in combination with Kubota. They've uh, joined with us to, to work with us to have a side-by-side -side that we'll be able to give away as part of a sweepstakes. So super exciting. Check out our ads. Check out our website. That's going to be launching any day now. Uh, federalpremium.com is where you'll find out more about that and keep an eye out in your, your favorite gun and shooting magazines to see that advertisement. Our next It's Federal Season podcast is scheduled to release on April 30th, and we have Rob Roberts, custom gun maker, to come on and talk to us about how he fine-tunes patterns for your shotgun and with our ammunition. He's a huge fan of our brand. Uh, Speed Shock, TSS. He's he's really found out a way to take our loads and fit them to your guns and really, you know, eke out that last bit of perfect performance and pattern out of his guns. He's a, a huge supporter of Benelli 
and partners with them. So can't wait to have him on and share his information with you all. And remember, until next time, it's always federal season. If you like the It's Federal Season podcast, be sure to let us know by filling out a rating and review on iTunes. And remember, for us, it's always in season. It's federal season.